You are listening to a podcast of the Fleming Foundation. We are an organization pursuing real learning, original scholarship, and thoughtful living in a dying age. Welcome to another episode of The Best Revenge on the Fleming Foundation. I'm your host, Stephen Heiner, and with me today is Dr. Thomas Fleming. Dr. Fleming, thanks for joining us. Uh, it's a great pleasure. The title of today's episode is The Finer Things, dot, dot, dot. And we want to address the, the notion of appreciating these things without necessarily having to have the education that modern society uh, purports that you have to have to enjoy these finer things. And I suppose, Dr. Fleming, this might be... Uh, I'm, I'm imagining in, in America when, when people are at a, one of these chain restaurants and ordering wine and they ask for the house red, whatever that means. Yeah. And I suppose that's... I, when I hear something like that, I think if Dr. Fleming was here, you know, he might cringe, you know, whatever, <laughs> whatever the house red is. So I, I suppose is, is, is cringing, uh, you know, the, 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 the appropriate um, reaction in such a situation and, and how might one go about starting to appreciate the finer things and I, perhaps the lowest hanging fruit or, or grapevine might be wine. Yeah, that's a, it's a good way to start. Um, First of all, it depends on the house. For example, in uh, in most parts of Greece, Athens is somewhat of an exception. In most most parts of Greece, the the house white, and it's it's a, in a in a they'll, they'll call it the the barrel white. They buy it by the by the keg or whatever. The house, which is, which is a very fresh retsina usually, and you can't even taste the the pine pitch in it because it's so fresh. That is probably going to be the best wine in the restaurant, including their fifty dollar bottles of wine that they that they're going to try to sell you, because this is all that the Greeks ever drink, and in fact they judge the quality of a restaurant by the quality of the of the house white. And in Italy, um, it's a little bit more complicated, but if a, if a place doesn't have a decent house wine, that means either that it's out of your price range, unless, unless you're very wealthy, or that they're, they're a, a place for snobby tourists who don't really understand uh, what wine is all about. Now I'm 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 not saying that one should always be ordering the the the, the house wine anywhere in the world except except for maybe uh, in rural Greece where it really is quite quite delightful, but rather that uh, wine exists as a you know a really basic pleasure. You know when uh, when at the wedding in Cana uh, they are running out of wine and Jesus turns the wine to water and the the. They they praise the host for serving the better wine. It, Second, cer- it certainly wasn't the house red. That's right. It wasn't the house red. But on the other hand, it wasn't Chateau Latour, nineteen sixty three. It it was in in other words, this whole idea of of labels and vintages and connoisseurship uh, of that of that type. It's fairly recent. I mean, it's you know one hundred and fifty years old, one hundred years old, unless you happen to be in the wine business. That is, you're either a grower or a, or a producer or or uh, you know or a middleman. But uh, the, the the way the 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 first the essence of of uh, enjoying wine properly is to begin by in, enjoying simple clear, straightforward wines, in, usually with somebody who knows more than you do. 
Now, uh, and in most of our, in, in, in my case, it's not difficult to find people who know more than, than I, I was <laughs> once. I was once visiting uh, Claude Paulin at his, uh, at his place in Paris. And, you know, he brought out six very old wines from his father's cellar. Now, Claude is, uh, you know, at that point, Claude was about 70. And uh, and none of them, in his view, was fit to drink. We sent, we tasted them slightly, and some of them looked like uh, beautiful women who had passed into their 60s. That is, there was still something elegant and lovely, but you knew that something had, had been lost, something, youth was gone. But uh, the point is, then he brought out wine he had made, uh, because he has a, a, a place in the country near Chartres, and this was a good, simple, straightforward peasant wine, such as you hardly ever get anymore in, in, in France. So the big thing is to start with, uh, you start your learning process by learning what's basically good and clean and what's basically bad. You know, for example, there are wines which if I take one taste, I begin to get a throbbing in my left temple telling me you're going to be sick if you drink this. I don't know what it is. It's maybe the sulfite in it, whatever it is. But really bad wine, get, I know I'm going to get I, the first sip. And it's, it's, uh, <laughs> it's sort of some sort of barometer in my head. And you can be taught, you know, you, there are, there's a place for sweet wine, but it's, it's not a very large place. And uh, there are all sorts of, you know, wine comes in every imaginable type. And to keep an open mind and to always, I always follow the suggestions of, of, of local people. Now, the problem in America is wine drinking. It's either done by people who order the really bad house red at, uh, at the Olive Garden. <laughs> But then again, uh, I don't think I'm being libelous and saying I can't imagine there's anything that is worth eating at the Olive Garden. I've, I've been there twice. Uh, people <laughs> took me. They're saying, yeah, I know you like Italian food. Let me take you to my favorite Italian. Oh, goodness. Great. I cannot imagine anyone taking Dr. Fleming to the Olive Garden. But <laughs> it is. It is and, and the one person, the first person who did it had spent a lot of time in Italy. And his, his remark was, well, I know it's not really authentic, but it's not bad. Yes, it was. Yes, it was. Everything from the bread to the salad to the pasta, everything was terrible. You know, it's a caricature of what um, I think we as Americans think. In fact, even using the term Italian food as if that means anything, yeah, substantively, yeah. right? Um, yeah. What does the food of Torino have to do with the food of Palermo? Almost <laughs> right. nothing. Right. Almost nothing. Well, you know, the, the I was once on an air, airplane uh, coming from uh, Milan. And the plane, we had to, we get, we got ready to take off and it turned out one of the air conditioners wasn't working and that would be fine because the weather was okay, but, but it was a transatlantic flight. And so FAA rules say you can't fly without two air conditioning units. So we had to spend the night in uh, Streza on Lago Maggiore, which was just pleasant enough. It was a resort hotel right on the lake. But anyway, the next day we're getting on the plane and everybody's hung over because they, they, the airline gave them this free hotel, free dinner, free, and so they splurged. So this lady is behind me and she smells, it's an Alitalia flight and they've already, the powdered garlic is burning in the, <laughs> in the microwave and she says, oh, I so love the smell of garlic in, it, in Italian food, don't you? And I said, no, I don't. <laughs> And, you know, because it was horrible. I knew I couldn't eat this stuff. 
So yeah, these cliches uh, about about wine and food, and you know, I I, I think I told you about my idea of inventing a kind of Euro Disney place where you could take a monorail and you would say, well, today you this this afternoon we're having lunch in Switzerland in the Alps, and you'd see virtual reality, you know, uh, going through the Alps, uh, you know, being uh, filmed. And then you'd, you'd have a, a, an authentic Swiss meal catered by, say, Nestle and Swiss Miss. And then you'd be on to Venice, and you'd have an authentic Italian meal catered by the Olive Garden. <laughs> and, you know, and you'd, and, you know, just go around that way, because th- think of the, the money you would save. You'd have, you'd have the authentic tourist experience you always wanted, people dressed in quaint costumes, speaking with uh, charming accents. You know, you do Maurice Chevalier in Paris, for example, or, right. and uh, you, uh, you do Aldo Cella if you're, in, uh, if you're in Italy. But anyway, the same thing is, the same thing is true. The, the, the foreign cuisines that are most popular in America are Mexican and Italian and, and Chinese, are incredibly disgusting. And if you've ever eaten real Chinese or real Italian or real French or real Mexican, there is a Mexican cuisine. It's quite delicious. I've never tasted anything remotely like it, even on the Texas side of the Mexican border. Well, Dr. Fleming, you do have to venture into the parts of town where no English is spoken, and you will find some, some authentic, uh, authentic Mexican cooking this side of the border. Yeah, it's very rare though. I mean, so I've been all over. I've been all over El Paso, for example, mm. and uh, I, you know the the hotel there. Um, there's a nice hotel. It's now it's it's a very historic joint, and it, it's actually owned by uh, now by a Mexican hotel chain, the equivalent of Holiday Inn in Mexico, <laughs> and uh, and so actually they have some fairly decent food. But again, it's it's sort of uh, the flavors are sort of watered down. But to go back to wine, so the, to begin by learning the basics, and my, my, the first thing is. If if somebody starts giving you all the rigmarole of of uh, uh, trying to teach you how to smell and examine the cork, how you know how to half inhale it, the whole the whole rigmarole of wine tasting is fine if you're at a wine tasting, but it's really uh, off putting at a in a in a restaurant, especially when they don't have that kind of wine, and when and when you you don't know what you're doing. I, I have been out to I've been taken out to dinner by some very wealthy people over the years. And one of the distinctions you can make is people who grew up with a lot of money and who have been around good wine all their life. They appreciate it. They, they'll take they'll take a, take a look at the cork because the point the point of the cork is if it's damaged, you, you might not even have to taste the wine to know that it's unacceptable and, and send it back. And then, yes, you can, if, if there's the slightest hint of it being corked or off, you know, again, the same applies. But these people uh, uh, are very restrained in their wine connoisseurship. They may know a hundred times what the pretentious ass sitting next to them knows, but they, but they don't show off. They don't, try to make, they don't try to make people feel uncomfortable. One of the real problems is courses. 
Everybody has to take a course at something. There are wine tasting courses, fly fishing courses, cigar connoisseur courses, you know, art courses. Every you in America today, you can't just say, "Well, I'll, I like I like a bottle of wine in the evening, and I like to smoke a decent cigar, and I like to go fish." No, 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 no. You have to go out and buy a uniform. You have to have a badge <laughs> of identity. You have to learn all sorts of secret lore. And uh, it's um, it's and now it used to be I'd I sometimes prefer to drink whiskey with the boys because at least there was no connoisseurship. Those happy days are gone. Well, Dr. Fleming, the first part of all hat and no saddle is getting the hat, right? <laughs> yeah, so that's, yeah. what, that's what those people are doing. Now, it, as far as wine tasting classes, I, you know what I found interesting is when I when I've taken those wine tasting classes or when I've gone to wine tasting yeah. at cellar doors. Yeah. I, I never knew that they were going to push me so much to trust my own palate. Again, this yeah. is the what you're talking about. I'm intimidated by the expert, so I go in there thinking I'm supposed to know, be able to pick, you know, persimmon out of this yeah. bouquet. And and they say if you like it, if you if your palate, if you're enjoying it, you know, go further. Ask yourself why you like this particular varietal. Yeah, yeah. but that's I, exactly right. Being told to trust my own palate by the experts is, I think, what more people need to hear. <laughs> Yeah. You know, it's an interesting uh, uh, analogy, and that is uh, uh, with literature, especially, say, poetry. People, uh, Americans, for most Americans, they know even less about poetry than they know about wine and cheese. And that this is saying a, a lot. And so if they decide that they're going to become litzy somehow, either because they genuinely seem to like they like the sound of poetry or because, uh, they, you know, they've just met a girl or a guy and he likes poetry. And so they, they, they want to share the pleasure. So they read a poem and and then somebody makes and they like it. And somebody makes fun of it. Oh, that's just Kipling. That, that, that's tacky. And so then they start adopting the attitudes of the official literary establishment. Not what I like, but what's, but what's supposed to be good. And then they read books of literary criticism to tell you what the poem really means, but you're too stupid. In fact, the poet was too stupid to say what he meant, because obviously what the, what the critic comes up with doesn't seem at all like what the superficial reading is. And so before, what, you're, what, had, what could have been a, a relationship of affection between you and the poet, a love affair, so to speak, becomes something dirty. It's a menage a trois where there's this evil person called the critic who is constantly getting in the way, telling you what to think about your experience. And people say, well, how? what's a good book I can read about poetry? And I just said, read a lot of poetry and find out where your tastes lie. Then look at what what the best people over the centuries have said. And if everybody agrees that Shakespeare's great and you just don't like it, well, give him another chance. Give him four or five chances. But but don't start out by reading books that tell you what you're supposed to read and why. And the same thing is true in, in with food and wine. F what, different people like different qualities. I, for example, uh, I have a weakness for very robust, even primitive red wines. So as much as I like a really, uh, to speak of Italian wines, now, as much as I like a really good Chianti or a really, for, for that matter, a, a really good uh, wine from Bordeaux, 
I, I, it is often, uh, for my crude barbaric palate, it's, I can appreciate it and admire it. But I often like something more like the, the Primitivo from Southern Italy or some of the really barbaric wild wines from the Balkans. Now, I'm not saying that I say those are better wines or even anywhere near as good as more, more polished finished wines. I'm saying that I have a taste for wine that is gives you a, a, a hint of blood and iron in it when you're drinking it. Now, that's a, maybe that's a bizarre taste. It's a false taste. But it's my taste. I, I, I like it, especially with, uh, with meats like lamb or duck, you know, stuff that has a, has a, has a kind of rich, bloody taste in itself. So your, your, the, the, the advice you're getting from the wine tasting is, is to learn uh, what you like. And then, then you could talk to somebody who knows more than you do, either an, an, either an actual expert or uh, just a friend who has been drinking wine. And say, well, you know, if you like these sort of wines that have, uh, how to put a three-dimensional sort of balance in them, you know, you, it's like, it's almost like it's creating a space in your mouth when you, when you, as you drink it. It, the, the uh, in Italian they call that, uh, uh Strutturato, a ben strutturato, well structured. And I thought, what does this guy mean, structured? And then I tasted the wine and I realized there, there are different levels. It's hitting your palate in this three dimensional way. And you can, once somebody points that out, you could say, oh yeah, well, this other one I really like is it's as straightforward as, you know, hitting, hitting a home run with a baseball. But on the other hand, you know, there are wines that are, are much more subtle and complex. And if you and you can learn to like it, but you, you tastings are good. But you don't, you know, it, as long as you don't fall into the trap of of uh, of, um, you know, develop developing too technical a vocabulary to wow your friends. Hmm. Plutarch says in his great essay, one of Plutarch's finest essays is how one knows one is making moral progress. And he says, well, one of the ways you know you're getting morally more, more, more mature is when you start avoiding technical language and you start concentrating on reality. You know, and he was hitting at the stoic logicians and people like that. Who are, and, and boy, if you read any modern academic book on ethics, you realize these people are interested in showing off vocabulary, but they have nothing to say. Something else that was interesting when I immigrated to, to France, Dr. Fleming, was this uh, perhaps American notion that, well, you're from France, so you know everything about cheeses and everything about wines. Yeah. And you come to find out a lot of my friends, they know as much as I do or, uh, or slightly more, but they, they're not necessarily curious insofar as they've been surrounded by it. Yeah. Um, for so long and they're just it, it's accepted that yes we have all this great cheese and great wine but because they're used to it they don't feel the uh, the curiosity and the excitement perhaps that I do is you know why I've gone to all the different wine regions of France and and, yeah. and, and learned about the cheeses because I'm the newcomer I'm, I'm the yeah. the new kid and I suppose that's something to offer as well to people is don't be afraid of being the new kid you'd be surprised what you know yeah, well, you know, this is this is always true. You know, the great defenders of tradition are usually outsiders. <laughs> Look at Cicero was not part of the Roman elite. You know, he was a he was wealthy, but he was but he was very much from the sticks. Edmund Burke was an Irish kid with mostly Catholic background, and he becomes the great defender of the the English church and the English way of life because as a newcomer, both Cicero and Burke learned to appreciate 
the the somewhat different culture they had a higher culture which 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 they had entered and similarly you get Polybius appreciating the Romans in a way that few Romans appreciated them so yeah it, 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 it it's certainly true there's there's a lot to be said for ordinary people within a culture whether French or Italian that they uh, they not they have a naive but on the one hand but also deep experience and and understanding that they they don't put into words and that's quite different from the newcomer who wants to learn and uh, it's both ways of learning and understanding are are wonderful it's just it just you know i i have european friends who adore american country music and love going to the american west you know these are these are sophisticated like right wing catholics who love you know classical music but they find something very exciting and they envy me that oh i i have italian friends who can't believe that i've actually met indians <laughs> You know, I mean, war hoop Indians, not uh, not uh, not Hindu Indians. Right. And uh, they we, would say, really, we would say feather, not dot. Yes, feather, not dot. I say, and I tell them, yes, my father had a friend who was an Ojibwa and he was a fishing guide and he would regularly take us fishing. And this guy, he, I really believed in Indian magic because you couldn't put a pole in his hand without him catching big fish. And if you sat and did what he told you, you caught fish immediately. So uh, and and they look with stars in their eyes, like like I like I walked with the apostles. <laughs> so you know, one of the things I like, uh, one of my favorite modern novels is the uh, E.M. Forster novel, A Room with a View. Mm-hmm. And uh, I hated Forster when I was growing up because I hated the book A Passage to India, and I still hate it. But in A Room with the View, of course, Lucy Honeychurch uh, goes to uh, and lives is in Florence. A number of strange things happen, and she she goes back in England and she's engaged to a um, to a very cultivated Englishman who tells her, you know, the Italianate Englishman is the very devil himself, which is I think was originally applied to Sir John Hawkwood, the uh, the, the the commander of the White Company of, uh, of English mercenaries. But anyway. So what he has learned from his spending time in Europe is to despise England. Lucy, what she has learned is she, she had been so fond of the hills in Tuscany that she learned to see the Tuscan hills in her own neighborhood. In other words, she learned to pay attention to what was beautiful and fine in the English landscape because she had been so enthusiastic about studying the Italian landscape. Now, that is a profound insight from Forster, who is very much a localist. So where every, every place you go has a story to tell, including your own neighborhood. And uh, unfortunately, the American wine story, I find extremely boring. Uh, that is, they, you know, we have wine here in Illinois. We had wine in South Carolina. Texas wine is among the worst I have ever drunk in my life. Completely, uh, you know, unacceptable on any level. But one of the problems, I think, with American winemaking is exemplified by the California industry. They have good grapes. They have people who know what they're doing. But the main object in California, and unfortunately it's spreading to Europe, is you want your winery to win prizes. Well, how does a wine win prize? Well, if you read The Wine Spectator, and because I buy from Wine.com, about half the year I have a free subscription to this detestable, odious magazine, which I hate. <laughs> but they have rating systems, you know, from one, from, uh, one to ten. 
And, you know, this gets a, or, or excuse me, zero to 100. So this gets a 92 on the wine spectator scale. Right. And one of the critic, one of the men who helped to develop this system and then later rebelled against it said, look, what you do is you get you get up you get so many points for a citrusy quality. You get so many points for it being dry and velvety. So many points for it being berry light. So many points for cinnamon or whatever. And he said, "But what if it all adds up to nothing, as it so often does?" Mm-hmm. He said, "The first thing, and this is something, Stephen, something you were bringing up earlier. The first thing is, do I like it? You don't get any points for being for being likable, for right. being agreeable." Right. I, I remember uh, the first time I, I had a, a blended wine down in the Barossa Valley in South, in South Australia, and it had this, this peppery quality. Yeah. And I was so excited because, of, A, I like pepper, but I'd never experienced that level of pepper in a wine yeah. before. And I thought, I want more of this. I don't know what this is, but I want more of it. And, and again, that, that excitement of of discovery around trusting your palate. I, I don't want to, some of our listeners may not be in, as into alcohol as we are, Dr. Fleming. So <laughs> we'll, we'll, I, we'll round out the wine, beer and spirits. Um, you mentioned whiskey. I, I thought I would just give a, a brief uh, hat tip to, to, to beer. And I, you know, there, people say there are wine people, there are beer people, there are dog people, there are cat people. I would definitely say I, I'm, I'm more of a wine person, but it isn't so, so pronounced as far as beer goes. I, I'm, if I, let's say if I'm not a beer person, when I go to Belgium, I am definitely a beer person. Oh, absolutely. It's so uh, fun, interesting. Uh, beer is like wine in Belgium and it's so complex and rich. And it's, Yeah, it's as strong as wine in Belgium too. Some of it. And, and I feel that uh, in America, there is a, a lot of this, um, this brewery culture that's coming yeah. back in, in a way and they're, and they're taking on some of the attitudes cultures and brewing styles of of the old world and it's 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 been interesting for me to to observe that i see a lot of let's say belgian style beers popping up in america i'd say for every good new beer i'm not a beer drinker partly because uh to pay for my sins nature and has inflicted me with esophageal ulcers and so uh bubbly products you know Coca I can't drink much Coca-Cola, which I don't drink anyway, champagne and beer. I, I drink a little bit and I like and I like beer. But um, I, I like beer that is like bread. In other words, beer has basically the only ingredient, the water, the the uh, the the quality of the malt and and the hot and the quality of the hops beer that tastes like for example I was treated to some grapefruit beer at a uh, at a beer tasting I've had cranberry beer I've had pine needle beer spruce beer I've had and uh, there are hundreds of horrible pretentious breweries in America that are scoring points with beer snobs but they can't make a beer that you that really goes with a bratwurst mm. and uh now but i i agree with you enti- a i agree with you entirely about really great belgian beer i once uh, donald livingston who is i believe a friend of yours don and i were in paris and he took me to this there's a there's a chain uh, uh it's the equivalent of mcdonald's for paris it's a, it's owned by the um the Leff Brewery in uh, in uh, Belgium. Have you ever been to one of these Leff joints? No, but I I know what you're speaking of. Yeah, they they have they have they have you know they have mussels they have fr- they have French French fr- fresh French fries they've got uh, you know sandwiches. It, it's it's French fast food 
and it's actually and they have a plat du jour. It's, it's actually quite good. So we're drinking beer, and he says, "This is my favorite beer." And it's and 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 after two bottles of beer, I'm getting very uh, lightheaded. And I said, well, "What is the percentage?" And he said, "I believe it's ten point five." Right. It's ten or twelve or fifteen sometimes. Yes, I know this. This stuff is uh, is is amazing, and there are good uh, breweries coming along in America. I'm not an, I'm not an expert because I don't I, I don't get a chance to to drink much beer, but you know, years ago in Wisconsin, it was a pleasure. If you drove through Eau Claire, there was a place called the Eau Claire Brewery, and it was the last American brewery that observed the Bavarian beer law, not because they were pretentious, but because it's what they did 125 years ago, and they never quit. On the eve of the, of the microbrewery revolution, Eau Claire beer went bankrupt. It's one of the... It's uh, and and I would give anything to have this naive, authentic Bavarian style beer produced naively in a small town rather than all these things with cute names, you know, flat tire, etc. Um, so I'm, I'm, <laughs> I think it's fat tire, but flat tire might be just as well, Dr. Fleming. <laughs> no, yeah, I, it is fat. It's, it's a, my my little joke, the uh, which obviously went flat. So, so many of them do, but but uh, anyway, um, and you know the 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 trouble with the microbrewery revolution is 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 a lot like the trouble with the wine spectator and with the uh, with the California wine mentality they're 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 trying to score points rather than bake bread you know there's a there's a there's a there's a there's a bread bakery near where i live and they don't make a single bread that i'm willing to eat because everything has flavors everything has style everything has this the one thing they don't know how to make is bread and the one thing that a lot of these microbreweries don't know, everything is overhopped, everything, everything is a highly hopped IPA, or it's this, or it's that. And what you want on a hot day is a good, solid, drinkable beer that they haven't put any sugar in on the one hand, and they don't have too much hops for the... They, they, they know that one of the sins against the Holy Ghost in, in brewing is you don't make a highly hopped, very heavy, dark beer. But they do that now. And the, the two... The, Two flavors clash. What I say, I don't know much about beer. I do have to confess that for 20 years I made beer. Mm. And I made better beer than you can buy in a store normally. And uh, and it's I'm not an expert, but I, I, beer is something that's quite easy to make uh, at, a, at a decent level. Wine takes a lot of work to make even decent wine. But beer, any fool can make beer. Well, uh, and and you were mentioning whiskey. I, one of the pleasures I take when I'm visiting the United States is, you know, getting a bottle of bourbon and, and working through it. Yeah. And uh, as you pointed out, even the the whiskey, the bourbon industry has been infected by this plague. I was uh, I was noting, I've done some writing work for uh, a micro distillery here in the United States, and it was pointed out that small batch has no technical meaning. You can call yeah. anything you. It's like having low fat yogurt right small yeah. small batch whiskey is literally meaningless because there's no there's no legal meaning attached to it so we, yeah. oh oh it's small batch I, i'm gonna pay an extra 10 bucks for this uh, yeah that's true that's true of a lot of terms for example uh the term organic has no meaning the term uh the term amish you know you buy amish chicken amish the it has no definition 
Amish just means you put the word Amish on the label, and it could be it could mean total total garbage. There's some Amish chicken sold as brands, which there's which is quite good, but a lot of it is just simply the same old Tyson chicken paying off the Clintons, you know, uh, <laughs> with uh, with stock deals, but. Um, but it's but they just put the word Amish on it and that makes it okay. Mm. Yeah, the same a small small batch uh, exactly. So what have you what have you noticed uh, uh, among uh, the whiskey drinkers? As you say, you're, you're trying to just uh, have some whiskey, but the people are making it obnoxious. Well, you know, first of all, they start with you know they're they're doing the the uh, the, the wine connoisseur bit with uh, you know flavors. Yeah. No, I will say this. Uh, I I don't like Jack Daniels because it tastes like banana peel to me. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but you know they're they're turning something. You know, look with bourbon whiskey. I don't maybe maybe five hundred years from now, but bourbon whiskey is not Scotch. Scotch has uh, has a finesse and uh, and a variety. I'm a bourbon drinker more than a Scotch drinker. But having said that, you know, uh, a uh, one ounce glass of scotch can be savored in the way that a cognac can be savored. I've never tasted a bourbon. like I like bourbon. I love bourbon. I drink a lot of bourbon, but I have not. And I've tasted some very, very fancy bourbons and, I, and which I like. Uh, but I think it's it's not so much the, the new bourbons, the small batch bourbons that I don't like them. It's rather the hype or, that surrounds them. I don't like. Mm. And, you know, and matching this this connoisseurship in bourbons is also an incredible cynicism. You know, if you look at the stuff Jim Beam is turning out these days. Red Stag, they put in, I don't know, cinnamon and sugar into it. And their excuse is that uh, women like this. Well, you know, the point is I refuse to buy any Jim Beam product because of the flavored bourbon. Now, not that any Jim Beam product was ever any good, but uh, that's a different question. I mean, I've drunk a lot of cheap whiskey in my life, too. And when I was poor, we would drink Evan Williams all the time. And Evan Williams was always better than Jim Beam. The trouble is that is that's like uh, it is acts on your system roughly like swallowing bailing wire, you know. <laughs> Well, it can break across sectarian lines too, uh, Dr. Fleming. I've had Irish people tell me they would never drink Bushmills because, you know, that's Protestant whiskey. Yes. Um, so people have their own reasons for why they might drink a particular spirit. Yeah. But before our listeners get too much of an impression that all that Dr. Fleming <laughs> and I do is drink, um, I'd like to turn turn the turn the topic slightly on its head by going back to something I remember reading from you four or five years ago when you talked about... Uh, someone had uh, was making a point to you about music or poetry, and you you specifically said to them, "No, there is such a good there is such a thing as good poetry objectively. There is such a good thing there is such a thing as good music objectively." So, if we go back to the theme of trust your gut, um, yeah. how can someone go about educating their palate in regards to poetry, music? Uh, perhaps opera, if they want to be a bit, I would yeah. say, ambitious, because I think with opera, there's also an element of patience that needs to be taken into account that our modern world doesn't yeah. let us develop. Yeah, I think in every case, in all these cases, and so many more, um, there are t the first thing is to is to trust your friends. In other words, if you have friends whom you like as uh, upright and worthy and uh, and have cultivated an interest, then at least one way to begin is if you have, for example, if you have a 
if you have a fishing buddy who likes poetry or a poetry buddy who likes fishing. Um, you know, in other words, you already share one taste. Well, you can learn things from talking to your friends. You, you, you ask advice on books. So you ask, you ask advice on, on music. Now, a lot of people have prejudices. I, I certainly have strong prejudices. My, uh, my friend Navrazov and I almost got into an argument on the website over Italian opera, which I'm not especially fond of. I like a lot of it. But, for example, I don't like Verdi. Now, an Italian would think this, this is, this is, this is a, a terrible sin. I like two or three Verdi operas, but I find him bombastic and tinny. I much prefer Bellini and Donizetti, and uh, even Rossini is, is, can be quite wonderful. But um, So don't trust me on Verdi because I don't like Verdi, although Don Carlo I like and, uh, and, and some of the other stuff. But, but, if you ha but pick, I, I've always found that the best thing to do is to borrow uh, tastes and enthusiasms from people you like and respect. And this, and this is true of whiskey. It's true of wine. It's true of cigars. It's true of uh, of, of uh, you know all all of these more or less innocent pleasures. And it's certain it's certainly true of music. And when when I get together with people who know so much more than I do, for example, I, I have friends who know a lot about Italian opera, and I love to listen to them and ask them questions. I have a friend who's a musician who has now moved from Rockford to Texas. He was our church organist, and he could he could talk for hours about the most obscure, you know, German composer from the 18th century. But if, as long as you kept on, uh, but he could also he could also talk about jazz. And that's I think that's then, of course, when you get uh, you get to know enough to know that some people are really are the real thing. They really know what they're talking about. Then you can read what they've had to say. But I'd say before you read books about something, whether it's literature, music or wine, before reading about it, experience it directly and, 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 and learn to take pleasure in it. Because once you've experienced it and taken pleasure in it, uh, then then you begin to develop a taste. The great Dr. Johnson, one of his, one of his most profound offhand remarks was, and it, it's something which sounds ridiculous today, but he said, no man is a hypocrite in his pleasures. <laughs> well, we're all hypocrites in our play. We all pretend to like this or that. But Johnson was living in a more in a more sincere age, and also he didn't mean talking about his pleasures. You know, the man who drinks too much whiskey or the woman who eats too much chocolate or, you know, they're, whatever they may say they like, we know what they really like by the way they behave. And people who listen to Italian opera all day are, are they're not just putting on air so they can talk about it. They love it. So people who are sincere in their, and so learn to, learn to be sincere in your pleasure. And there's nothing wrong in hating Beethoven. For example, I do hate Beethoven. <laughs> Well, and I, I suppose there, Doctor Fleming, there's a bit of guilt on my part um, if I if I think about, let's say, my my twenties when I really just loved impressionism and I really loved Beethoven. I could listen to yeah. his stuff over and over. And when I say guilt, I've come to appreciate uh, forms of art and forms of music that put Beethoven within his proper context. Yeah. But I have to, if I'm, if I'm honest with myself, I still have this gut instinct that, Oh, I like that piece or I like that piece, but it's coming yeah. from a, a less informed version of myself. 
But now that I but see, but that, but yeah, go ahead. But see, what what you don't want to do is repudiate your earlier self. Right. I can't say that I didn't like it. Right. I did. Yeah, I did yeah. like it, and and I, there's part you, of me that still does. You are still that person. Right. You know that that great line from Tennyson's Ulysses: "I am a part of all that I have met." Well, part of what I've met is the friendships I've made, the uh, the wine I've drunk, the music I've listened to, the poetry I've enjoyed, and so, for example, I, I have some very de- some very degenerate taste. Uh, once upon a time, I loved uh, the uh, English decadent poets and the and the uh, their their French uh, the, the French writers like uh, Baudelaire and Verlaine who inspired them. And I refuse to repudiate them. I could see that there are immoral and unwholesome tendencies in them and that I wouldn't give them to, you know, a, a, uh, uh, an unbalanced 17-year-old person. But, uh, but why pretend that you didn't like it? I, I used to have I, – I was, I was very fond of, uh, of, of old country music. That is from the 40s and 50s, you know, Hank Williams, Ernest Tubb. I still play Hank Williams and Ernest Tubb when I'm, when I'm drinking bourbon uh, before dinner. Um, I don't – you know, Augustine has this business that in um, in the uh, in the Confessions, which have always tr- troubled me. You know, when he became a Christian, he repudiated his common law wife. We call her a concubine. Come on, she's a common law wife with with his child, and it was as if he tr- he was reinventing himself. I don't think you I don't think you should or can really reinvent yourself without a certain surrender to hypocrisy. I'm not accusing Augustine of hypocrisy. I am saying that I don't I think that you know you meet people who say oh, well there's a great uh, great line of uh, Stan Laurel where he he uh, he's 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 in a he's in a rest home. He's a military veteran and Ollie comes to see him after years has has, has lost track of him. And Stan says, Ollie, you know the way I used to be? Well, I'm better now. Well, of course, uh, Ollie ends up getting beaten up because Stanley is not any better now. He's exactly the same as what he always is. And, uh, and I've always taken as a personal motto the line of Popeye the Sailor. I am what I am, and that's all what I am. And, and so if you, have a, if you happen to like an American hamburger, or you like, uh, you know, there's all sorts of sort of innocent but not very elevated pleasures. Why, why pretend? Well, I, I mean, you- I, I, I'm with you on that, Doctor. I mean, I, I have, I unabashedly eat chili dogs when I'm in the United States. Oh, absolutely. I, I don't you ought even to go, know to, to go to Cincinnati and have chili three ways no, if you want a really trashy experience. <laughs> Indeed. I mean, I don't even, I don't even know chili dogs are legal in France. Um, <laughs> you know, I want, I want to circle back to what you're saying about letting yourself experience something uh, first, because uh, it, it brings me back to wine, that idea of wine and and smelling it, nosing it letting your mind go there before you taste it. In the same way, I actually think sometimes the education can ruin the experience of it for you. I'm uh, uh, remembering a time that I saw Emmanuel Axe play uh, Beethoven's uh, Emperor Concerto. And I had listened endlessly to a Van Cliburn recording of the piece, which, which I prefer the Van Cliburn. And I, when I heard the piece uh, live, I'm, I'm watching Emmanuel Axe play uh, I'm thinking to myself, well, this isn't quite correct, quote unquote, whatever was correct in my head had been formed by Van Cliburn. And so my enjoyment of the piece was somewhat mitigated because I had formed in my head that this is the way that you play that. 
And uh, same thing with tasty notes. You were saying, you know, wine spectator. You know, if you're yeah. reading in there that you should experience this nutty note or this apricot and you don't taste it, you must feel like yeah. a schmuck, right? Yeah, yeah. You know, that, that I've got uh, two, two, two things to say about it. One is uh, the problem with listening to too much recorded music, especially if it's music that you own, is that that becomes then the benchmark for everything else. Hmm. And so, like, I used to listen, like, I grew up listening to Walter Gieseking play Beethoven sonatas, and Walter Gieseking and Serkin and uh, Schnabel. And when I, when I, in the, uh, when I heard the pianists of the uh, 50s, 60s, and 70s, uh, they all played too slow, like Van Kleiber, mm. because these things go in patterns. And so, like, be, like uh, and uh, in symphonic music, the uh, Klemperer, Otto Klemperer, you know, he dissects every every orchestral score and so that you could hear every note, every texture, every line. It drives me crazy. Now, of course, they have I, I was very happy with, for example, uh, Bernard Heitink, because over the years, you know, he was playing more of the old fashioned tempos, much, much brisker. But now, now it's become a fad, and so they're playing things faster and faster. So now I'm I'm complaining now that they're playing too fast. But anticip anticipation has two 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 bad aspects to it. If you if you you can get yourself worked up for, before a concert, and then you finally hear it, and you really it it, it lets you down. The the happiest I, concert I ever went to, I was in college. And somebody said, uh, like at uh, five thirty or six o'clock, are you going to uh, the Boston Symphony? I think it was being uh, conductor. William Steinberg uh, was their guest conductor, whatever. And uh, I said, no, I didn't even know they were in, in town. And he said, yeah, they're playing down at uh, the you know the, this hall on Archdale on a on a Wentworth Street in, in Charleston. And so I said, well, it's too late to get tickets. They said, well, I'm ushering. Come on. So I said, well, I haven't even shaved. I don't, you know, I've just got a crummy tie and an old sports shirt. I said, don't worry. So we ran in. I handed out programs, sat down, and listened to the Brahms first. Hmm. Without, so I had no time to get ready. Uh, it, 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 I, I, I was like I was rolled over by a tank. I, I, it, was a, it was an unforgettable experience. Not that I think Steinberg is all that. The ensemble was very great, and it was a good interpretation. But the important thing was I hadn't had time to mess with my head and, and, and get myself all worked up. The second thing is if you've, if you've studied too much and you've got, oh, and if you heard too many recordings or at worst heard one recording over and over, uh, then, uh, then, then it spoils you in the, in the sixties and seventies, rock and roll fans would start booing because when their favorite band played live, it didn't sound like what the band was, uh, How they would be uh, what they the yeah. right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. The other thing on the wine, I had a, a friend in graduate school, and he invited me and a, and a, a guy who had lived in Europe for a while and uh, over for a, a lunch. And uh, he everything came out of Julia Child, but he didn't know the basics of cooking, so the food wasn't very good. One of the first really great cooks I knew was a redneck girl from Western North Carolina who married a New York Jewish husband who taught her the sophisticated techniques. But she had her mother had died when she was a child and she had raised a father and two brothers and she knew how to fry, bake, saute. And she turned into a, a great French cook overnight. 
So, but so this 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 uh, fellow student, uh, he brings out the wine. He had read. He had got. He had ordered it because it had been reviewed in Alexis Lachine's Encyclopedia Wines and Spirits. So he opens it. And we taste a little bit, and he says, and I'm quoting now, I say, gentlemen, that's something quite splendid, isn't it? <laughs> well, he left the room. My friend looked at me, and I looked at him, and he said, corked? And I said, corked. <laughs> <laughs> something splendid. He'd read about it in a book. And that if I hadn't ever thought about it before... The, the 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 problem of theoretical knowledge versus actual knowledge. My friend and I never read a thing about wine at that point, but uh, but we had drunk a lot of wine. <laughs> sounds sounds like you you had a bottle of the Emperor's new wine, uh, probably. <laughs> yes, exactly. Splendid indeed. Well, uh, there's more. Obviously, Doc Fleming. We could. I, I'm thinking people might ask for a second installment of this episode so. to, to cover so. bread, cheese, chocolate, and other of the important We've, things in life. Um, but I wanted to make sure we wrap up with these, the strategies and the, the tangible uh, directions you push people. One, yeah. to crowdsource, um, to ask friends who you like about their, their taste so you can get pushed in a certain direction. Secondly, to, to trust your gut, um, that there's nothing wrong with uh, the way that you feel about a certain taste uh, or a certain item. And, and thirdly, take time to educate yourself about what has been known to be good, whether it's in music or, or wine or whatever, so that you can then bring some information to your gut and to your crowdsourcing. Is there, is there anything yeah. I missed among there? I, I would add one thing that you brought up earlier, which is that there are objective standards in everything. You may not, you may not happen to agree. Like C.S. Lewis once remarked that uh, he had no ear for music. He understood from other people that music was a great, of great help in a church service. For as far as he was concerned, he hated it, but he knew that he was wrong. Because it was it was the universal sentiment of people within the history of Christianity that music music is an important part, and so similarly there is even though you might not like something it is important in in addition to having your own taste it is important to understand that uh, you know that Mozart and Haydn may be better than the rock and roll that you that you grew up listening to. Well, on that note, listening to Haydn instead of rock and roll, we'll finish uh, today's episode. Uh, thanks, as always, for your time, Dr. Fleming. Well, better pleasure. Thank you for listening to a podcast of the Fleming Foundation. All rights are reserved. These podcasts are made possible by our paid members, who ensure that our hosts and writers can contribute regularly, not on a volunteer basis. If you have any questions about anything you heard on today's episode, or if you wish to acquire rebroadcast rights, please email podcasts at fleming.foundation. Until next time, on behalf of all of us here at the Foundation, make the most of a dark age.